Father, thank you for just a sweet time of worship led by these men who love the Lord. They love your word and they love to lead us in worship. And so we're grateful for them. Um, bless their lives, provide for them, Lord. Do thank you for a church here that would gather on a Wednesday night and not give up, but gladly come and spend an hour of worship and word together, Lord, and bring their children and grandchildren to be ministered to. And uh, Lord, these, these things are worth it. We love, we love your word and we love to know it. We love to let it mold us more into the image of your son. We, we love this process, Lord. It, it is hard at times. The word of God will expose our sin expose errant views and yet Lord we quickly a believer wants to put ourselves under it it's a mark Lord you've given us a hunger for your word so Lord teach us tonight many many years ago these events took place and yet we see so much truth so relevant for today Lord so we thank you for your word in Jesus name amen title of the sermon, Grace Upon Grace for the Undeserving. Certainly that title is uh, very reflective of the Word of God, uh, excuse me, of the glory and person of Christ seen in the Word of God. Um, Grace Upon Grace is just God continuing to give to us over and over, meeting our needs and loving us even when we don't deserve it. Well, this passage here is uh, uh, certainly marked by that. We have these brothers who have uh, lived pretty wicked lives, tried to murder and get rid of their brother, and now 22 years later, they're standing in front of him, but they don't know it. <laughs> and God is going to show great mercy and grace upon them. As you remember, as we studied here last week, that Joseph uh, has been playing with them a little bit in, in a sense that he's trying to discover what if, if they're really repentive, if they'll see the wrongs they have done, if they'll understand the evil that they have done that God meant for good. We're going to see that in chapter 50. That's a great saying of Joseph's. But it's, a, it's an interesting scene that's taking place. And I'd imagine Joseph's servants don't seem to know what's going on. Why is he doing this? You put money in their, in their grain sacks, you send them all the way home, they open it up and their grain, their money's there, and but yet they're missing Simeon, who's in jail, and they got to tell Dad this, and they got to bring Benjamin back. And so I imagine these servants are going, "I'm not sure what uh, what they, what uh, Joseph's doing here." Uh, they must have been perplexed a little bit um, at the treatment of these men, uh, these Canaanite men. They uh, it must have scratched their heads a little bit, and I'm sure rumors were flying. Joseph is giving money away and grain. You can imagine that. There's a little bit of government conspiracy going on here, possibly. And maybe they thought that Joseph had lost some of his wisdom. What's he doing? Why is he doing this? We've not seen him handle things this way, but he keeps giving money to these guys, and he's got one in prison, and he sends them home. And uh, What's he doing here? Has he lost his wisdom? Or is he acting like a lot of other politicians here? Maybe they thought this. These guys have some kind of power or they have something over him, maybe. This is maybe why he's giving them favor. He's after some kind of financial gain or some political power. Possibly they thought that. 
And I imagine the first hours that are taking place here as these, these men are here in front of Joseph and waiting for him to come to lunch in our last text and, and they're in the house and their feet are being washed and all these things are happening. Uh, I would imagine it's a bit confusing for them as well. They know what they did 22 years ago. They've already said the guilt of his blood is upon us. <laughs> and they're waiting around for Joseph, the Lord of Egypt, to come and have lunch with them. Now Simeon's released and the brothers are, are, are honored guests in this Lord of Egypt's house. They're refreshed. The Bible said last week that he, they gave them water and washed their feet. And then they're invited to this formal luncheon. Remember, in the back of their mind, we killed our brother, we killed our brother, <laughs> or we at least tried to. They're wrestling with these things. The lunch doesn't get any easier, probably. Joseph gives portions from his table to his brothers. And then to Benjamin, he gives five times as much. You remember that? And then Joseph graciously receives these gifts that have come from the father um, to him and he receives this and there's there's this engagement going on back and forth there's this giving of food and these gifts being given back to the to joseph and he's receiving that and he's he's inquiring about the father and he's inquiring about the well-being of the family and he's treating them like a, a regular business associates but eventually, eventually we see in verse, uh, chapter 43, verse 30, Joseph broke down. Remember that? He's trying to handle this in a certain way, but verse 30, Joseph hurried out and was deeply stirred over his brothers. And he sought a place to weep and he entered his chambers and wept there. He, he flees to his private quarters. This is emotional for him. This is 22 years of not seeing his, son, his brothers, and, and particularly Benjamin. And now they're in his, in his house, and he's caring for them. He's showing great grace to them. But meanwhile, the brothers are becoming a little more comfortable. You notice that at the end of 43, they're seeming to feel pretty good about things. And maybe, maybe they're thinking, well, we got away with something here. This, this is all going to turn out okay. Simeon's been released. He seems to be really happy with Benjamin. Uh, we don't know why he likes Benjamin so much, but he's really happy with him, so maybe he's a good luck charm. Things are going good, and, and by the way, we're kind of rubbing elbows with some of these elite of Egypt. Maybe we can get a contract. So it seems like everything is going well. But Joseph's not too sure of their repentance, is he? He wants to make sure that they have realized what they've done, that they've changed, that something has gone different in their life. And, and so you can see what he's going to do in this text. How will they react to one more final test? How, what will they do there? Will this break them? Will they seek to murder me? Will they, what will they do if I test them one more time? And how will they react to the father's last favorite son being accused of being a, th a thief? How are they going to do all that? And will one of them, or any of them, sacrifice themselves for somebody else? Will one lay down their life for another? That's really the ultimate question that he's looking for. And God is leading Joseph along in this stirring events here. Well, this would have been the perfect time for these men in into 43, these brothers 
to repent to Joseph. I could almost see it written in the text where uh, the brothers would have go, hey, look, um, Lord of Egypt, uh, years ago we did something awful. We, we attempted to murder our little brother and we ended up selling him. And he got on a Midian caravan and he came here to Egypt and we don't know if he's alive or dead but we are terribly guilty of this. We think this is part of the reason. Um, we need your help. We, we're, we're confessing this. This would have been a great time for that, wouldn't it? <laughs> but like so many times we ourselves, when we have the great opportunity to repent of something, it seems like maybe a little twist in the road happens for, well, maybe, maybe I don't need to do this. And I think that's what happens here. They feel pretty comfortable. That repentance never happened. And Joseph has one more challenge for them. So number one, let's look at a couple thoughts here. The final test. Look at verses 1 through 6 in 44. Then he commanded his house steward, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of the sack. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph had told them. Verse 3, And as soon as it was light, the men were sent away, they with their donkeys. And they had just gone out of the city and were not far off when Joseph said to the house steward, Up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? <laughs> well, he's teaching a lesson here, isn't he? Is not this the one of whom which my Lord drinks and which he indeed uses for deviation, you have, wrong, you have done wrong in doing this. So the, he overtook them and spoke these words to them. So this house student is instructed. He's told to go chase these men down and, and find them. And, and as before, um, well, excuse me, he, first he's instructed to fill their tax with grain just as he did before. And he put the money back in there. He's given all these very clear instructions. And this house servant, the steward, does exactly what he's told. Um, at one point before I get the, the, the confrontation that goes on here, I, I thought about this. I was studying this. I thought, you know, somebody sticks a bunch of money in my suitcase, and I get home and open that up and go, hmm. <laughs> I think the next time I travel, I might check that. <laughs> but they don't seem to check it. And, and I, think, I thought this today. I thought, I think they had become secure that we got away with this. We got away with this. And we're all headed home. So this, this steward puts the money back. They take off. And Joseph adds this silver cup. This is an interesting term. A lot of people have struggled or wondered about this verse. Notice in verse 2 he says, Put my silver cup in the mouth of the sack of the youngest. And his money back in the grain. And then, of course, verse uh, five, he says, is not this one from, he brings out the silver cup, uh, from which my Lord drinks, in which he indeed uses for deviation? Well, that's an interesting term, especially spoken of Joseph. So I want you to understand a little bit what was going on here. So in the Egyptian world, of course, I've said this before, it was very polythe polytheistic, so there's multiple gods, plurality of gods, lots of gods. But beyond that, they were a nation, a society of mysticism. And one of the things that you find in most religions of the world, they're very mystic. Um, Catholicism, real true Catholicism, 
<laughs> really hold to it. It's amazing how mystic they are. They believe in burying statues and saying certain sayings at the right time. If you say it at the right time, then this will happen and, and so forth. And um, all the things, everything from bless you, uh, that, was, that came out of the Catholic Church to exercise demons out of you. And so the Reformers used Gesundheit, German, because that's where the Reformation started, to upheaval that thing. So, so I'm just giving, it's very mystical, right? And these guys are very mystical. So, so what's Joseph doing with this deviation cup? Why does he have this? Well, the Egyptians believed that these cups were useful for predicting the future. And they were often cups and they would put jewels or they call them tokens on the outside and tokens on the inside. They were made and they were covered with silver and gold and very, very valuable. And only the elites and very wealthy would have something like this. And as they drank from it or poured uh, fluid in it of liquids of some sort, they would stare into the cup and the, and the jewels would send light off of it. And there they would try to understand if that was giving them some kind of vision of future. Now, as I read that, I thought, well, it often probably depended on what they put in the cup. <laughs> that probably really helped. <laughs> so that's what this is about. Now, how does Joseph end up with one of these, and why does he have that if he's a man of God? Well, I think these are very expensive gifts, and they're given to very special people. And most of my study led this. Dallas C. Joseph was, was given these cup, and particularly this cup, and probably, probably, this is my thoughts, given because of that interpretation that he did. Somebody said, let's give him one of these very, very valuable jewel cups that's for knowing the future. Since he seems to know the future, he seems to predict it, let's give him one of those. Most likely it was an expensive gift. It also would represent that he had a high-ranking position. It probably was marked uniquely for Joseph. It might have even been made for him once he had that position. So it was an honor, not in any way something that Joseph would have been practicing this pagan ritual. There's nothing in the Bible, there's absolutely nothing that would tell us that Joseph did that. In fact, everything would say just a different. He had a full trust in God, and he never took any credit for anything of any dream or anything he understood of the future. He gave it all to God. And so, so a lot of people have asked about that, but I, I, I just, I think it was just a gift. And it probably marked him in some way, and so this belonged to Joseph, and now this cup is in Benjamin's sack. It is amazing. And so this, this house steward here in this text catches up with the brothers, um, probably not too far out of town, and he confronts them. Look at verse 7 through 13. Now he's said, why did you do this? Why have you taken my master's stuff? And they respond. Look at their response in verse 7 and following. And they said, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it that your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in the mouths of our sacks we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whom of your servants is it found? With, with whomever your servant it is found, let him die. Uh-oh. And we also will be the Lord's master. So he said, now, let us also, according to your words, uh, let it also be according to your words, he with whom it is found shall be my slave, and the rest of you shall be innocent. And then they hurried. Each man lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning from the oldest and ending in the youngest. There's a climatic end to this, isn't this? And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And they tore their clothes 
And we each man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. So you can see this very plainly. The, the steward searches the sacks. He starts with the oldest. He knows where it is. He put it in there. But can you imagine the pressure when that first sack opens and here comes this money and they're going, not again. Not again. And, and each one, okay, the money's there. That's not good, but the cup's not in there. And, it, and he works his way down these 11 brothers here, um, working his way down to Joseph. You can imagine what was going on through their minds. And the steward must have expected this kind of denial, right? He, he knew, he anticipated this, right? He knew he put him in there. And the denial is really true, right? I mean, he says, why does the Lord speak such words in verse, verse 7? We, we wouldn't do this. Maybe the term jaw-dropping came here as they opened that sack and pulled that stuff out. What? Uh, You could just see this. And you can see that the response is just overwhelming and they tear their clothes. This is an ancient way of either great sorrow or great anger. Um, We see it throughout the scriptures. uh, Those that hated Jesus in front of his trial as they mocked him, tore his clothes with just fierce anger others when when uh weeping and wailing over something that's happened the great grief they tear their clothes and 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 i think it's the latter they know what this is going to cost they know what they told father jacob before they left i'll bring them back judah said and now the cup is found in benjamin's sack and they are escorted back to the city and Back to Joseph's house, and young Benjamin's in some trouble. Look at verse 14 through 17. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. And they fell down to the ground before him. And Joseph said to them, what is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that a man as, uh, such a man as I can indeed practice deviation? So Judah said, Why can we, what can we say, my Lord? What can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? God has found our iniquity of your servants. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are your Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whom the possession of the cup was found. But he said to them, notice this, far be it from me to do this, the man whose possession, man in whose possession the cup was found, he shall be my slave, but as for the rest of you, go in peace to your father. <laughs> now, once again, the brothers are bowing before Joseph. Notice that. That's right back to those dreams. They're down in front of Joseph again. And this formally, they're formally accused here of this criminal activity in verse 15. Notice that. But Joseph, he, he rebukes their foolish attempt to defraud him. He, he's... he's He's, he's after something here, right? And he implies that his divine insight gave him knowledge to their, to their deeds. He says, don't you know that such, one such as I has divination powers, right? He's messing with them. You took my cup. This is the cup that I have. I can see the future. I knew you had it. He's playing with them. And, and, and some people have asked about that, but I think it's just part of his disguise. At this point, he is still this Egyptian ruler, um, he's still known as this one who is able to interpret dreams and know the future, and he's using that. But Joseph knows that only God alone has that. Now notice verse 16. 
Judah breaks down here and gives a very small partial confession. Look at verse 16. What shall I say to my Lord? What shall I speak? There's some interesting terminology in here. How can we justify ourselves? Let me stop there. They didn't do this act, did they? (laughs) They're completely innocent of this. But if you get pulled over and you were someone threw a sack of drugs in your trunk while you were in pumping gas or paying for your soda, you get pulled over and they open up your trunk and you go, <laughs> what are you going to say? I, I didn't do it. They're going, it's right here. And so he's, he's at this point, well, I don't know what to tell you. I, I don't know how to justify this. I, I don't know what to do. And so finally, notice what he says in the middle of this verse. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. It's the first crack of repentance, of confession. It's the start of new life. It really is. And confession must come from true repentance. We can confess things and then turn around and just walk away and blame somebody else. But repentance starts with that confession. Lord, you know what I've done. Now, he doesn't go far enough and say what he has done. Again, this door is right here. He could have said... Lord, we know that God's hand is upon us because of what we did 22 years ago, and he could have went right through the scenario again. Another great opportunity to come clean with everything. Not just general sin, right? This is the way most of us like to confess. Well, you know, did, did, you, you, know, did you lie about that? Oh, yeah, I, you, know, I, I, you know, I kind of stretched it a little bit, but... No, we need to learn to say... Here's what I did, sweetheart. I was, I was unkind. I said this. I assumed that. I am asking your forgiveness for those things. See, this is still general. And, and it isn't complete. But it's a start. It's a start. I really... I... I I love these portions of scriptures because they teach us so much about the human heart. But I know what he's doing here. There's more to this. There is a crack to some kind of confession here. But really his plead is, is I want to see, see, what, see what's happening here in verse 16. His plead is that all the brothers be your slave because we're not going back without Benjamin. Dad already threatened us to an inch of our life. I got my whole life stuck on this thing, Judah's telling. We're not going back, so we're either all your slaves or nothing. That's what he's doing. Don't miss it. Because he didn't want to deal with dad. <laughs> and so he's saying, notice in the verse, we are all your slaves, but Joseph is right on top of it. And he goes, oh, no, no. Far be that from me. <laughs> you guys are innocent. I just want the guilty one. And he calls their bluff on this in verse 17. And he knows exactly what he's doing. He knows that Benjamin is the way to the heart of the matter. He knows how to get to the heart of this. Benjamin's the key. And God has given him wisdom to to go after little Ben and get him in order to bring this family to repentance. So Joseph says, it would be wrong for me to make you slaves. Go in peace. I'll just keep Ben here with me. Second thought, intercession and sacrifice. Number two, intercession and sacrifice. This is a breaking point here. Judah knows that this can't continue. He, 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 just, he knows they're at the end here. This has gone long enough. 
And now he intercedes and pleads for the family. Notice what he does. Follow along as we read the rest of the chapters. A phenomenal story as this takes place here. Then Judah approaches him, that's Joseph, and says, Oh my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in your Lord's ear. And do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. It's a very good understanding of his position. But notice, I don't want anybody else to hear this. Uh, This isn't a public confession. I just want to speak to you. And you alone. Verse 19, my Lord asked his servant, saying, he's now Judas beginning to rehearse what has taken place. Have you a father or a brother? Remember, remember Jacob said, why did you tell him you had a little brother? Well, because he asked us, <laughs> right? So now he's rehearsing that in verse 19. You asked if I had a father and brother. And we said to my Lord, we have an older father and a little child of his old age. Now his, bro- his brother is dead. So he alone is left of his mother and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, that would be him and his brothers, bring him down to me and I may set my eyes upon him. But we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father for if he should leave his father, his father would die. You said to your servants, however, unless the younger brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. What he leaves out is Simeon doesn't get out. (laughs) We kind of forgot about older brother. Now we'll feed him, we'll let him go if we don't have to deal with this. Verse 25, our father said, go back and buy us a little grain. But we said, we cannot go down. If our younger brother is not, is, is, if our younger brother is with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And one went out from me. And I said, surely he is torn into pieces. Remember, this is him thinking what had happened to Joseph. They ripped his coat of many colors and dipped it in blood and gave it back to them. This was a deceit of 22 years ago. And I have not seen him since. Verse 29, and if you take this one also with me and harm befalls him, you will bring my grave hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and I... And the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life. When he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus your servant will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? For fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father. This is an amazing set of events here, and some of the language here is lots to talk about here, but you can see what's taking place. He's rehearsing this scene that has taken place in front of Jacob. Jacob has still struggled with favoritisms, particularly now of Benjamin. Um, They're convinced that their dad's manipulation was true. They're afraid he will die. They're they're, they're afraid that that, uh, probably Judah's going, look, I'm surety for him. How am I going to handle this? I'm sure my father will die if we do not come back for him. And probably what we should focus on the most is that there seems to be some indication of a character change here in Judah. Remember, this is Judah. This is the one who wiped people out. 
mass murdered people. Um, he is, he, he's not squeaky clean by any stretch of the means. And, but yet we, we see that there's, there's a slight character change here. He's pleading. He's now putting himself in place of Benjamin. He, he, he doesn't deny that, that the guilt of Benjamin, even though Benjamin didn't take the cup, he doesn't deny that in any way, but instead he, he emphasizes the family history. He says, here's what's taken place. Here's what happened this last year while we were gone. Here, here's how we dealt with my dad. And, and then I think what is such an amazing point here, and I, I want to just belabor this for a moment, is Judah's willingness to become a substitute for Benjamin. That's, that's significant. He's willing to do it. And I think this is that final test, part of that final test that Joseph's looking for. Will someone lay their life down for someone else? You tried to take a life. You tried to give a life away. You tried to do all. Who will lay down for a life now? And I think it revealed enough of the brother's hearts that he knew he could move forward with them. Not everything's there. Listen, it's one of the things we have to work as we try to help people come out of sin and, and we try to love them, a family member or, or someone we're working with. Um, we're, I often tell people, you, you're trying to get them here and they're here. Let's get them here and, and let's help them pray and study the scriptures and get them here and here and so forth and let's progress along. And I think Joseph looks at that and there's nowhere in the narrative yet, I think there's a place coming, that maybe that whole discussion came out. But he's, he's satisfied to see one brother say, I will sacrifice my life for another. That's, that's pretty significant. And I think it, it marks some very important things. First of all, notice who it is. It's Judah. That's where the line of Christ is going to come through. And there's no one better who is going to lay their life down for someone else than Christ. And though Judah is not even close to Christ in any way, shape, or form, there is a tie there, isn't that? You can't miss it. The same man whom the seed of Christ will come through is the same one who is willing to lay his life down. Look at a couple of verses real quick with me just to mark them here um, so you think about them. How about Galatians chapter 3, verse 13? And there's... There's too many verses to try to hit them all here, but I just wanted to look at a couple of verses where we would think about um, uh, substitution, substitution atonement for someone. You'd substitute for someone. Now, this is a great verse in the middle of the great teaching on justification in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 13. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now, notice this phrase, having become the curse for us. Now, that little Greek verb, uh, Greek uh, uh, preposition for there, it's a tremendous little preposition. It's used in, in some of the most strategic passages that teach on the substitution and death of Christ. It is the, it is the idea of being in place of. You, could, you can read it that way. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse in our place. You could actually translate the idea of that phrase real easy. For it is written, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Look at Romans chapter 8 with me. Excuse me, chapter 5. 
For while we were, verse 6, 5, 6, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodlies. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. I think that we know that, right? That's happened in military settings. There's people who have laid their life down for others. That has happened. Judah's doing that now. But the problem is, Judah's a sinner. And he could free Benjamin if Joseph would agree to that arrangement, but he couldn't save Benjamin. I always tell people you could nail me to a thousand crosses and it wouldn't save anyone. And then he says this, verse 8, But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, and here's this little prepositional phrase, Christ died for us. In our place, he substituted. We should have hung on that cross, but Christ hung on it in our place. And so all the judgment of the Father, everything that we did, he judged Christ as though he did it. Those are harsh phrases, and and sometimes people say, man, I've never thought about that. You say that often. God judged Christ as though he committed our sins because anything less would not free us from our sins. And though Judah here, what he is doing is uh, far removed from what Christ has, has done, it's still an example, and I love what the Old Testament does and shows us some of these types to remind us of substitutionary death. And, when, and as you turn back to chapter 44 here, I think, this is what, I think this is what's moving Joseph. And I think I can prove it. And point number three, true joy that is free of sin. Look at verse one and two in verse 45 after this takes place. Then Joseph could not control himself before all of those. This is right after Judah says, take my life. I'll be the substitute. Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he, cri- and he cried, have, have every, so he goes, have everyone go out from me. He's, he's, he's losing it right here. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. I don't know how close these houses were, but this was quite a wailing. Joseph's emotions are just overtake him. There's nothing sweeter than seeing someone come to repentance. For for those of us that maybe have dealt with difficult relationships or from in the church or family or whatever it may be in your case, when you see someone repent where they no longer blame you or anybody else for anything and they own their sin, there's often great emotion not only out of that person who's repenting but the one who is receiving that message. And some of the greatest times in my Christian life that I've seen when people have come to repentance over issues and notice how deep sorrow or joy or a mixture of this is happening here. And I, I think because, I wrote in my notes this, few humans experience or come near this kind of emotions because most people never repent this way. When's the last time you just fell in front of God and you wept in front of him and said, my life does not match what you've done for me. 
when we hate our sin so much that we would weep over it. Now certainly that's not what Joseph is doing, but he is so glad to see that weight of that sin being dealt with now. And that emotion is, is rare today, I think. And I think, it's, I think it's so pure on Joseph's part, and that's why I labeled this point this way. I think this emotion is so great because it's free of sin on his part. Just recently, I had an encounter with a family member that has repented, and it, it was one of the most sweetest things that's happened to me in so long. It, it, it was just freeing to watch him repent and to turn from sin and, and the reconciliation follows and restoration follows and healing follows. All that comes. I think that's all that's coming out of him right here. He just, he can't control it anymore. He's, this has been a long, long trial and though he has given it to God and named his child forgotten, he's human and, and he's missed this family and, and sin has divided them and all that is now coming to an end and you can just see him explode with emotion. He can't control himself. Notice verse three and four. Then Joseph said to his brothers, look, he just blurts it out, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? I, I can't wait to see the replay on this. I mean, you know, all, there's lots of places in scriptures I say that, but there's not time to talk here. He just says, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? You've lied before. I need to know the truth right now. Is dad alive? What an amazing thing. And his brothers here, the Bible says in verse 3, but his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. The Hebrew has the idea they're almost like dead men. We don't even, uh, uh, you can imagine nothing could come out of their mouth. Verse 4, then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. Remember, he looks Egyptian. He's painted up Egyptian. He has an Egyptian cup. He's, he's Egyptian, right? Come closer. It seems up to now maybe he's kept his distance from them. And they came closer and he said to them, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold to Egypt. <laughs> what a climax. What a climax. All of this led because Judah said, take me. I'm done. I've played this game for 22 years. I can't take it anymore. I can't go home without Benjamin. Take my life. And it brings it to this. And you can see the scene here, how beautiful it is. Before, Joseph, before his brothers can gather himself, he just responds and, and the scene is, is just amazing. Here's this, I, I, I thought about it this way. Here's this president or, or CEO of Egypt, right? <laughs> He's a, he's a big man on campus. And, and here's this family, these Canaanites. They're known for their, their widespread of, of livestock and who they are. And, and the, the CEO's weeping. And, the, and these Canaanite men, they're, they're bewildered. They don't even know what's going on here. And then the Egyptian officers are going, uh, uh, they're trying to figure out what's going on here. They've seen some of the antics that are going on. And then you got Benjamin. He's sitting there and going, what? What? <laughs> he doesn't know any of this. All he knows is his brother is dead. I mean, he's, he's, he's the innocent party, and he's, got, of course, got the cup in his bag. 
And so what a scene. Look at the end of three. Um, these men couldn't answer. They're speechless. They're doubtlessly grasping for breath at this revelation. The last time, think about it, the last time they saw Joseph, he was a teenage boy, 17 years old. Their hearts were full of wickedness. 22 years has gone by. Their intent was to kill him. And now they're standing before him. And not only standing, bowing before him. This is who they wanted to kill. And in essence, Joseph is telling them that he has known about this for two years. <laughs> They're figuring this out. You, you've been doing this for two years. Somewhere along the line, they had to think about that. But they're, and I think that's why they're, uh, they're trying to figure this out. I'm your brother. And they're, they're going, wait a minute, we, we, we met with you two years ago. I think Joseph's heart is, he's just free from bitterness. There's no bitterness there. He just wants them close and he wants to assure them that, that who he is. And they're kind of in this stupor. But, but look at five through eight. He says this, now, now do not be grieved. It's a, they're, both these words are strong for anger or super frustrated. Do not be grieved or angry with yourself. They're two different words, but they both are very similar. Because you sold me here. <laughs> For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be no plowing, no harvest. God sent me before you to preserve you, a remnant in the earth. Wow. And to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now therefore, if it was not you who sent me here, excuse me, but it was not you who sent me here, but God. Look at the acknowledgement of that. Brothers and sisters, we have to get to this point when things happen to us that are not good, that are even wicked, that are even sinful, that when someone intentionally sent to hurt us, we have to get to this point that God still has his hand in it. And if you don't, you will flood yourself with bitterness. You will always view God in an improper way till you get to that point and say, God, I am responsible for the sin, but you still have directed my paths and I worship you for that. He's trying to teach them this lesson here. And he said, He, God, has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his household and a ruler over the land of Egypt. I think Joseph probably sensed their bewilderment here. How would they react? Would they erupt in hostility or would they try to finish the murder off? Would they collapse in sorrow and humility before him? I think it's more the latter here. But I think slowly these men are starting to realize what God has done for them. Slowly the truth of Joseph begins to sink into them. And God has been in charge of all these events for these past 22 years. And repentance is now leading its way and it's morphing into reconciliation. And reconciliation is moving to restoration. And restoration is moving to healing. And all that's taking place in this narrative. And if you look closely at it, you begin to see that. And Joseph is experiencing the most joy. And he was, and listen to this, he had the most wrong done to him. That, that is such a lesson for us. Everybody, believe me, there's so many people in this room could stand up and say, here's what people have done to me. We've all had injustices. We've all been sinned against. But I don't know that any of us can stand and hold a candle to what happened to Joseph. And yet, he had the most joy. 
They're not weeping with joy so loud that the neighbors hear. Joseph is. He's the one experiencing the joy. And so there's two things in this. As I just want to, before I move on this last couple of points, is one, repent if you have sin in your life. That's, it's just, there's so much freedom to that. God will give you grace in the consequences. He's a gracious God, and, and he'll help you through that if you remain humble before him. But in the other end, walk with God. Even when people harm you, walk with God. Because you will be joyful when no one else is at times in, a, in some ugly situations that will come in life. For Joseph's the provider, protector, and leader. Boy, look what happens here, verse 9. He says, hurry, go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph. <laughs> Jacob never thought he'd hear those words again, would he? Tell him, your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of Egypt. Come down here, do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. And there I also will provide for you. For there are still five years of famine to come, and you and your household and all that you have will be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that, this, that, that, is, my, that is my mouth which speaks um, to you. Verse 13. Now you must tell my father of all the splendor of Egypt. You've seen it, boys. Go back and tell him all that you have seen. And you must hurry and bring my father down. And then they fell down. Um, then, then he fell, excuse me, this is Joseph now. Then Joseph fell on his brother's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. He's finally figuring out all this. I just got a brother back. All this was lies and deceit. And, he, and so this reunion here, he kissed all of his brothers and wept on them. Notice that. And afterwards, and look at this. This is, this is an interesting phrase. I have it marked in my Bible. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Now, it's just a narrative. It's a little simple phrase. But I think probably the whole story came out. Here's what we did. We lied. We took your coat, we cut it up, we ripped it up, we killed a lamb, we put blood all over it, we went and told dad that you were ripped apart by a, a beast. And dad has suffered for 22 years now. And I think this is where it all came out and all of the, the conf confession, the repentance led to confession. But what's neat about this passage is here's Joseph. He's provider. He's a protector. He's leader. There's still difficult times to come. He makes it very clear twice. There's a still an awful five years that are going to come. You're going to be impoverished. And Joseph has been put by God in this lofty position to protect this nation. This is the nation of Israel. This is where Christ is going to come. This is, this is where David's going to come from. This is where Samuel's going to come from. This is where Hannah's going to come from. This is where Ruth is going to come from. All of the great patriarchs and matriarchs are coming from this line right here. But the most important is Christ. And God said, I put you there. And he knew it. And so he could say with great effort that, I know you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. One last thought, five. True reconciliation brings God's grace. I don't want you to miss this point. Notice um, here that as we think about reconciliation often people who truly repent and reconcile um, God brings people along to help them I, I've watched that many many times 
he loves repentance. He, 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 he died for that, right? And so the grace of God is often accompanies those consequences. Notice in verse 16, look what God does for them. Now when the news was, uh, was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan and take your father and the households and come to me and I will give you the best land of Egypt and you will eat of the fat of the lamb. And you, and they says, now you are ordered, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for the little ones and for the wives and bring your father and come and do not concern yourself with your goods for the best of all of the land of Egypt is yours. And I can't promise you that if you repent that the Pharaoh's gonna come along and give you a new wagon. <laughs> but this is what God often does. He loves his children, even his naughty children, which would be all of us. And he, he brings gracious things along to us. And, and, and you can just see what happens. This news of reconciliation hits Pharaoh's house and he's thrilled over this. He loves, he loves Joseph. And Pharaoh quickly, quickly reiterates and affirms Joseph's position as this, as this right hand to him. And he offers this permanent residency for Jacob and his family. And it's quite possibly, and this is what I think happened, that Joseph already arranged this with him. I, I would imagine he maybe had this conversation. Hey, Pharaoh, here's what I've been doing with my brothers. <laughs> I'm praying that God will, will reconcile us and they'll repent and, and I want to bring them here. I want to save them. And I, you can imagine Pharaoh going, I, I want to do that for you. You've saved our nation. I want to do that for you. And possibly he already had that conversation. So Pharaoh just reacts and says, here's the front door. Give them everything. And so Egypt supplies Jacob, Israel, with land and grain for their whole family enterprise. They transport the family and bring them down and probably sent people to move their livestock. And notice in verse 21 through 25, then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave changes of garments. Remember, garments are like money. And not, to, not very long ago. I mean, back all the way to, I mean, probably into the 18, early 1900s, your clothes were worth a lot of money. Now we buy them at Walmart for nothing. It don't last very long, but... Um, so he gives them changes of clothes, but to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of, of garments. And you say, well, is that fair? You know, Benjamin really suffered. I think this is the grace of God. He was robbed of his childhood brother. He was lied to for 22 years. And I think God is just rewarding Benjamin. He didn't do any of this. He wasn't involved in their schemes. And so I, I don't think this is as much favoritism as we sometimes read into it. And then to his father, he sent his following, 10 donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt. I don't know what's in there, but probably something good. Egyptian cotton somewhere, sheets. 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and substance for the father on his journey. So he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, look at this little phrase, do not quarrel on the journey. It's like in the back seat on the road trip. Why? They're still here. They're not here yet. 
Still a little bit of blame shift probably going on or tempted to do that. Or, or maybe along the way, remember, it's probably a full month journey for these guys to get back that someone's heart can harden up and start an argument. Don't quarrel. God's doing this. God's doing this. This meeting I had with a family member when we went out west recently, I told him, I said, there's, there's nothing to go back on now. This is done. Our Lord has forgiven us. This is done. I do not wish to discuss this with you anymore. I love you. Let's move forward. What a great thing to be able to do that. Isn't that what the Lord does with us? Then why do we bring it up all the time? When you are forgiven, you let it go. Don't quarrel. It'll hurt your marriage. It'll hurt your children. Have to forgive and move on. The Lord has chosen not to remember your sins. People say, God forgets your sins. Uh, uh, God can't forget. He chooses not to bring our sins ever up again. And I think that's what Joseph's doing here. Don't quarrel. It's done. Go get dad. Take him these goodies. Get back here. Isn't that beautiful? Look at the grace of God poured out on them. And then finally... And we'll start with this next week when we get into 46, but I just want to touch on these, this. They, they told him, they got to Jacob, right? In verse 25, they, they, they end up there and they went from Egypt and they came to the land of Canaan where their father was and, and they told Jacob saying, Joseph is alive. <laughs> and indeed, he's the ruler of all of the land of Egypt. I think that's a way of saying, you remember those dreams? <laughs> he's loving them. But uh, Jacob, like the boys, he's stunned, it says here, for he did not believe them. Jaw down on the ground. Somebody had to pick it up. I mean, for 22 years, his son is dead. And when they told him all the words that Joseph, that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. Truth will revive you. Repentance will revive you. Confession will revive you. Living according to God will revive you. No matter what people do around you. It revives you. In verse 28, then Israel, that's Jacob, said, it is enough, my son is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. What a storybook ending, isn't it? Um, It's not done yet. But what an amazing story. I love these stories because they teach me that it's possible. And for me, I got to quit because we're late here. But for me, while I've been studying this, I got to watch this live out in my own family. And it was all the more precious and made these passages come off the page and slap me and encourage me and shake me and fill me full of joy and all the other things as I've studied this. But if you stay in the game with somebody Maybe there's somebody that you're trying to love through and and it may be difficult. It may be tough love at times. Stay in it. Do what's right. Stand for God's word lovingly. If you've sinned in that process, repent to them even though they've maybe, maybe they did something worse but, you know, in man's eyes. But take care of your own business with them. And then you'll get to do what Joseph did. You'll get to just joy flood out of you that your neighbors can see. Amen? Lord, this is good. Thanks for letting us study this book together. Thanks for this church. Thank you for these believers here.
Teach us these things. Counsel us, Lord. We're all getting counseled right now. This is good stuff, Lord, and we need to know this. We need to live this. If you just took this core right here tonight, and maybe those watching at home, and just us, if we, if we reacted to this and lived this, what would you do with just this group right here? How could this affect family members and coworkers and forth, Lord, for your glory? Lord, help us repent, confess, reconcile, be restored, and be healed. For your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.